What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Blairless Podcast. Today, I'm so excited to be here with Alexander Sarando from the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. Hey, hey, thank you for having <laughs> me. So we had such a great conversation on your podcast. I felt like it was only right to bring you back onto the Blairless. Well, thank you. I'm glad, you. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I certainly did. And it was one of the easier editing processes I've had. Thank you. I appreciate that. As do I. (laughs) So on this podcast, we like to start at the beginning. Where are you from and what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, I'm from Miami. And when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor. I wanted to be Jim Carrey specifically. But then I um, started writing when I was in third grade um, because there was an assignment. We were reading the Helen Keller, like the child's version of the Helen Keller autobiography. And... um, there was an assignment where we just had to like write a book report about this Helen Keller book. And I got really into it. And um, I was a horrible student otherwise, and always kind of always was. And then like a few days later, the teacher went to the front of the room and she was like, oh, I'm gonna, some, one, one of you did a better job than all the others in the essay. And I was like, I'm sure it was Noel. I was just thinking of one of the kids who does like really exceptionally well. And she said it was me. And then I was like, wow, I better milk this for the rest of my life because I got nothing else going for me. But I'm sad. Yeah, so I just was writing little stories and stuff ever since I was a kid. And now it's kind of, I remember like toward the end of high school, feeling like the most blessed person because I remember everyone was being like, there was that emotional semi-intellectual hurdle of the SAT. I did terribly at the SAT. I'm not saying it wasn't difficult. I got like a 900 and they were like, I think that means I even spelled my name wrong, but I did horribly. (laughs) And I remember everyone was so consumed by that and the, all the volcanic anxiety surrounding it and then it was done and now it was like okay where do i get into school and then okay now you're in school and then the, everyone was confronted with the question of like well what am i going to study and i remember the blank faces and everyone feeling adrift and everyone having a life crisis and i was like so i was like oh i know what i'm doing and yeah i've got an ebook coming out in the next few days and it's occasioned by the fact that I'm about to turn 30 and one of the things that I'm confronting as I turn 30 is like all of my professional friends like five years ago when it was we were all out of college like newly out of college and they were sort of in the lower levels of the profession that they had aspired toward and it was clearly just they're just going to climb the ladder for the rest of their life and I was so envious and I was so terrified because they're there's no trajectory if you want to be a writer. It's not like you go here, you do this, and whatever. Um, but now at 30, it, I don't know if you have a different perspective of this, but they all seem miserable. They all seem so unhappy. Do you find this to be the case? Because I know you are, I don't mean to be presumptuous, but I have a feeling that you're pretty much, like the entirety of your social network comprises office workers in serious profession, like professionals, right? You'd be surprised, actually, no. No? I would think because it's, it seems to demand so much of you that I would think it kind of takes up your life and then... Yeah, I was actually talking about this the other day. A lot of my close friends, I'm very lucky. I have been friends with them since I was very young and almost born. So I have friends, you know, 25 plus years that 
I am still very close to to this day. And they are all very, very different for me when it comes to career. So, you know, it's funny to think that way because I have a lot of acquaintances that, you know, work in my industry or in the corporate world, but the people closest to me are not like that. Really? Which is interesting because thankfully my close friends are uh, very supportive of me, even though they're not really always understanding what I do. I have friends who work in finance and things like that, lines of work that are so complicated that they cannot, ex if we meet up at a bar and they, like, they're palpably upset, they can't explain to me what has made them upset because it requires, I basically need to do two semesters of tax work before <laughs> I can understand the nuances of why they're so upset. And it, bec it becomes this thing where like, there is an entire hemisphere of my friends' lives that is completely hidden from me. Not because of secrecy, but because of like, I'm, I'm, not, in, I'm not intellectually elastic enough to sort of encompass whatever it is that's bothering them. I remember being 24 years old, it's 3 a.m. and I'm like downtown sitting on a curb, drinking vodka out of a plastic bottle, smoking a cigarette that I don't like. And, and, and there was something sexy about it. There was something vivacious about it. And, um, and now I see people doing that when I'm on Brickle and stuff, because I live, not very, I live in Little Havana, but I walk over and I spend a lot of time in Brickle. And I see those young people and part of me envies them. And then another part of me is like, whoa, that looks fucking exhausting. <laughs> um, wow, imagine if I smoked a cigarette right now, what my next two days would be like. <laughs> I mean, I would, <laughs> I, I would have That's how you know you're 30. And so the world seems so much bigger to me in that I can kind of appreciate the complexity of things that I didn't quite understand when I was 20. I hadn't taken the time to understand them. And yet my world is so much smaller because I'm not, you know, taking three shots and then just walking into the horizon as I used to do when I was 23 or something. I imagine you're experiencing some measure of this because when I think of your industry, advertising, and you don't have like a nebulous role in advertising. You work at a particular company doing a particular thing and you know the ins and outs of a particular industry, which is a major industry that's part of people's everyday lives. And it seems to me like a big sprawling monster. But prior to our doing like the formal introduction, you and I were talking about various ins and outs of the liquor industry. And it seems like you know it so intimately that it has shrunk in your mind. And you see, like you were talking, we were talking about the colors of cans and the amount of marketing research that goes into the color of a can. And I don't know, I look at, you know, I look at a can of beer and I'm like, what relic is this? Um, who made But this? in actuality, a lot of focus groups, rounds of edits, millions of eyes, and countless global teams have all approved it before it went into production and before you got it in your hand. And you didn't know that you were being subconsciously marketed towards in order to pick up that particular brand with those particular colors, with those particular flavors. Marketing. Marketing, right. That's a, another thing of not realizing that, you know, that's it's a good thing, thing for you, honestly, because it, it makes me really jaded. I feel like I cannot walk into a store now without being like, you know, analyzing everything out of everything because I, I know that side of it. I've, I have another essay. This sounds like a Elizabeth Warren. I have a plan for it. I have something in, in the ebook about, <laughs> about wh what you're, you're talking about there of you become more jaded and you're saying that's a good thing. And I agree with you. 
in some respects. But the thing about that is like you, I would think especially for you, if I was in your shoes, this would haunt me because I would think, okay, I know the ins and outs of marketing. I know how they tug certain strings in order to get me to think a certain way, buy a certain way. That would make it so that every time I walked into a public place and someone smiled at me, I'd be like, what are you selling? Or I'd be like, how am I getting fucked here? I know I'm getting fucked. How is it happening? And I would become incredibly jaded and not open. But then the thing is, and that's good because you become defensive and you don't get taken advantage of as much. But another thing that happens is some of the magic goes out of life because then, I mean, I, you just see how, you know how the sausage is made. It makes you, in some ways it comes full circle because you, you stop seeing the beauty of things because now you know how the system works. But then you come around to knowing how artificial everything is that when you see something authentic, you're like, oh, how pretty. It does make me a little bit jaded, but I, I do think that it makes me appreciate genuine things way more because then I'm like, oh, if I see something and it naturally catches my eye and I'm not thinking about like everything that goes in behind it, I'm like, oh, I kind of love that. Let's jump into the podcast. Okay. What inspired you to create Thousand Movie Project? Um, I'd been doing Thousand Movie Project as a blog for quite a while. And then, um, I don't know, I just wanted to take a stab at podcasting and I did it again and again and again, and it really sucked. And I've had a few people who have listened to like the entirety of the catalog, like they trace it backwards and they're like, whoa, this is like horrible regression. Um, so I can't listen to like the first 35 episodes. They're unbearable. Excuse me, nor would I advise anyone else to do it. Um, and I think it's because I went into podcasting and I imagine... I don't think this has really happened to you from what I can discern of your podcast. And that was one of the things that we discussed. You go into it with this conception of what you're going to do. And I think everybody sits around with their friends and says, God, this should be a podcast because our conversation is so inherently riveting. Mm -hmm. And I really thought that, that was going to happen, but I was going to turn on the mic and I was just going to be awesome and as, as fascinating to other people as I was to myself. But first of all, there's the paralysis that you experience over the mic. Um, so then you have to get savvy at editing or else you have to get used to just starting over from scratch again and again. Um, so I started doing outlines and then I started doing outright, outright scripts. And I think the only thing that salvaged it and ended up making it somewhat, I think it's somewhat worthwhile. I, yeah, it's okay. It's an okay podcast. I have, I have listeners. Um, is that I was never cemented into an idea of what a podcast had to be. There was a long time where I was trying to make it a certain thing and it wouldn't bend that way. Um, and I think it's your voice in any sort of creative outlet is like a stick that you pick up on the ground when you're a kid. And like, it might not bend in the way that you want it to bend, but that doesn't mean it's useless. No one really knows what they're doing, right? They kind of just like are throwing something at the wall and hoping that it sticks. And I think that the main key of what makes something succeed is passion. When you're passionate about something, it translates over and people can see that. When you're, like you said, when you're enjoying yourself, People can see that. People are like, oh, okay. She's into it. I'm kind of into it. Like, this is cool. And I think it's less and less as time goes on about like the topics that you're talking about and more about the way you make your listeners feel. When I turned 21, I made a list on Tumblr of like 21 Tumblr, pieces of shout out. I know, but those were the days um, of like 21 pieces of advice I would give to my 12 year old self. And I'm doing like a small, a reduced version of that um, for my 30th birthday. Oh, I love and, that. And one of one of the pieces of advice is like I think it's very important every now and then spontaneously to divulge to the people around you something that really compels you. The reason you should do that is because there are going to be days where you need to be reminded. 
that people notice you. And those are the little gestures that you're allowing them to make. Like I am obsessed with Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen and Rocky, all the Rocky movies, um, which I think are like a like a, a massive, profound tapestry of art that we can get into some other time. But um, there, I've had I've been having horrible days in the past where someone will just like send me a link to some Leonard Cohen thing that they saw, and they're like, "Oh, I saw this and I thought of you," and I'm like, "Oh, I exist in other people's lives." Social media is a tricky subject, right? Because it's everyone's highlight reels. No one is posting about their failures. And if they are, it's to gain empathy from their audience, right? And that's not always a good thing. It's kind of to make it seem like, oh, I'm human too, instead of just like actually being human on social media. And I think that working in marketing, I've seen a huge shift in the world of social media from being this sort of like picture perfect i'm an influencer and i'm in bali and like oh, living right. my best life and perfect photos to people posting about things you know that they're going through and i think that it may not be a hundred percent honest all the time however i'm sure that post might have helped someone in some way and i right. think that being more exposed and real is where brands are growing and influencers are growing. The the girls who like don't edit their pictures all the time or are talking about a terrible situation that they went through that maybe makes them look not so great. They're sort of like strength in that. And I think people are attracted to that because they're overseeing the picture perfect lifestyle on Instagram. Yeah. The, and the, it, yes. And it gets even muddier. I, um, when I worked for a ghostwriter, we had to, I had to do some research. I'd write a report about cause marketing, the explosion of cause marketing when a brand affiliates with a cause. And I had to do a list of very successful versions, instances where this happened and a list of <laughs> really fucking disastrous outcomes. Um, but not many of the, some of them were ugly, but they weren't disastrous. Like for instance, I think KFC had this thing where if you, I think they had a kid's meal once upon a time, and if you bought a half liter, a half liter cup of Pepsi for your kid's meal, they would donate the cost of that cup to juvenile diabetes. And you think, well, why don't you, that. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make sense, but they gave a lot of money to juvenile diabetes. And then they did that with the Susan G. Komen bucket in Breast Cancer Awareness Month. They had a pink bucket for family size takeout meal. And they said they would donate like half of that price to Susan G. Komen. And a lot of a lot of people were like, well, obesity is a contributing factor to breast cancer. Mm. Nor do I think that your food is like totally free of, of, of things that, you know, are harmful. But they ended up making at the time, I don't know if it's been surpassed, like the, the single largest donation that Susan G. Komen has ever received. It was like four and a half million dollars. And, um, and so there's this thing of like, yeah, like, then it prompts the question, is KFC full of shit when they say we support, you know, breast cancer awareness month, we are you're peddling a product which kind of says otherwise, and yet you are in a way putting your money where your mouth is. Um, and I don't know, John, John Updike said, um, celebrity is a mask that eats the face. And you, I kind of see that in social media when people achieve like, for instance, you you interviewed a, an influencer who was perfectly delightful, and um, and I think I looked at some of her stuff after I heard the interview. It was one of your early ones, and she is sort of glowing, positive, just an array of positivity. But when you were asking her, you really got 
got her to open up. When you were asking her about business maneuvers, she's a fucking shrewd business person. And she's like, get what you're worth. And she was like, they're going to try to fuck you. And she didn't use the, the, that word. But there was part of me that was like, can this intense, you know, I don't know. Can this intense capitalist can this intense person coincide with right. the other, with the light? Can the darkness live with the light? Right. It's funny you bring up that interview. It's one of my favorite interviews I've done to this day. And it was the second episode with Emily Sobel. And the interesting part about her is, you know, I've known her forever. So I've seen her go through a lot of phases that she works both on the influencer side and the brand side. So talking about okay. social media and all of these different things, she has a very different lens because she knows both sides. She knows right. what budgets brands have. She knows what influencers are getting. And she's also an influencer pitching herself. And I think that one of the takeaways that I got from that interview in relation to what we're talking about is that people get very, very caught up on what they see on social media and taking that as a fact. And I think that that's where the issue lies. Either whether it's a brand advertising something, a person talking about something, you don't truly know what someone is going through behind the screen. And we spend so much time on Instagram, or at least I do just even for work purposes. And you become subconsciously influenced by all of these people and seeing like, well, and then you start thinking in terms of lack, why don't I have that? Why don't I have this? How come she right. has all of this and I don't? And I think that it fosters a really toxic environment and it doesn't allow us to appreciate the good things in our life. Yeah. And I, th I think the good thing, going back to what I mentioned earlier, one of the things that's sort of opened my eyes to finding the good thing is that contraction of your life. Um, it's, you know, falling into routine. I think routine has been the major turning point of like getting into my 30s is like a strict dependency on routine. Because if you're very routinized, and your body is going to the same places and doing the same motions all the time, your mind opens up because your mind doesn't have to be burdened with questions of where am I eating tonight? Where am I, what am I wearing today? Where am I going? You know, whatever. And once you free your mind of that thing and your body is suddenly just piloting your brain around, your mind is open up and you start contemplating things and you start looking at things from different, different angles. And um, I think it's so weird to tell, it feels weird to, to suggest to people not telling anyone to do anything important. Um, but like, I would suggest making a strict routine, but that fucking sounds like something that everyone, every fucking self-help guru tells, make a routine, um, do this, do that, eat well. Um, Which by know. the way, like is one of the hardest things for me to do, especially it, during quarantine. That was a major thing where I realized wow, I have no routine and I don't do the same thing every day. And I'm waking up at different times and my body feels exhausted. And that coupled with getting older, I think that COVID either brought out the fact that you don't have a routine or it emphasized the current one that you have. And That's I, probably I, true. I want to know from your perspective, since you are turning 30 tomorrow, what is the biggest lesson that you've learned in your 20s? It's so weird. This has happened like six times in the past five years that I will have some slowly percolating epiphany over the course of weeks. I'm on this sort of 
cerebral grindstone rubbing my chin and my eyebrow and being curt with people because I'm thinking about, and then I figure it out. I have this epiphany and I, and I articulate it to someone and they go, yep, fake it till you make it. And I'm like, fuck, every time I think I've reached something profound, everyone can so easily boil it down to fake it till you make it. So I don't think I've had any kind of really wise thing. I think I, everything I've, re every epiphany I've had about the world has, is, can be essentially boiled down into some cliche that we already know. Um, I just was able to put faces and names to them. But really the epiphanies have had to do with like myself and rec reconciling myself in particular to the fact that like, I really like to write and I really like to podcast. And the, what I learned working with the ghost writer is that he was very good at his job and he was extremely unhappy because even though he was very good, he was, he was a novelist and he wrote novels, you know, fiction that he wanted to get published and short stories got published and he could never publish his novels. And when he turned 50, he had 12 that were unpublished. And I am, when I turn 30 tomorrow, I will have written five novels that have been unpublished. And the first time I wrote, I spent three years writing a 500 page novel toward the, in the latter part of college. And then when I got out and then it got uniformly rejected and I was like shattered. And then I did another one and it got uniformly rejected but the rejections were warmer. And then the third one uniformly rejected but that was the one where people were like, send me more pages, send me more pages. Actually write me a, write me a synopsis, a three page synopsis. Um, and then it, every failure has been a little bit better, a little bit warmer. And the reason, the, the only, the reason it started getting warmer is because after I wrote two books with, that were just handmade with all the intention of being commercially viable and those failed, I was like, I am never fucking doing that again. Like I need to make sure that every time I sit down, I'm doing something that I enjoy, which again, sounds so fucking trite when someone's to make sure you do what you love. Um, I know it's not that easy. No, nobody loves what they do every single day, even if they exactly. love it. You know what and I also, mean? Right. And you need to reconcile your, your yourself to the fact that like, you're not going to, you're probably not going to make it in terms of celebrity money. Your podcast is probably never going to find a sponsor, or if it does, it's going to be some rev share deal where you make virtually nothing. And you just sort of flash around the, the, the notion that someone is sponsoring you. You're not going to make money at this. So you got to make sure that you enjoy it. And what's going to be really precious is whatever you're recording now at 23, seven, nine, you, your grandkids are going to listen to it and you're going to love it when you, on your 40th birthday, you're going to listen to what you recorded on your 30th and maybe on your 20th. And it's going to be very, it's going to be immeasurably rewarding to you and to your loved ones. And um, it's going to be a metric for how you've grown. You're going to look back and it's going to, it's going to put your life into context and it's going to give you, it's going to reveal to you your own narrative and where you came from. I don't know how you, how you ended up the way that you are. Um, and so I think, yeah, the big lesson that I'm taking into 30 is I'm self-publishing things. I'm not waiting for a publisher to acknowledge me because the, I, it, I'm, it's, it's hard to say that to people because everyone wants, if you're sitting at a, a dinner with someone, you say, I'm probably not going to make it as an author. And they know that's all you want to do. They're going to dive across the table and shh, 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 don't say that, don't say that. Don't say that. It's going to work out. Everything's going to be fine. But the fact of the matter is it's probably not going to happen. Um, so <laughs> it's probably just, it's just true. There's so many people trying to write. Um, COVID has been a big issue with publishing that every agent's inbox is flooded with novels that people wrote in during quarantine. Um, so don't wait for it to happen. The downside is virtually nobody's going to look at the stuff that you put out. The upside is the people who stick around and listen to the podcast or read the ebook or listen to the tracks from this totally obscure person are going to be big fans. And what it reminds me of is like when I was fucking in seventh grade and I would 
I would wake up so early on Friday morning because E-Bombs World, the comedy website, was going to be refreshed with new content. Oh, hold on. You, oh my God, I need to text my brother after this. You just opened like a door that was shut in my <laughs> brain for like the last 15 years. A time capsule. And do you, but do you remember? Shit. But do you remember how much that, how much excitement that generated when once a week you were going to get four funny videos? You know what this reminds me of? What? Post Secret. Where did that go? And that it's became still, like a bunch no, of coffee table books? Still, it still exists. I still check it once really? a week. But I obviously didn't check it for like 20 years. And then I went, I thought right. of it randomly and I was like, oh my God. And I looked back and they're still updating it. Because people were still sending shit because it made an impression on people. And but I remember dude, back in the day, like that was there was, scandalous. There was it was you would be like, oh my god, what did yeah. this person write? And it'd be like that they cheated on their wife or that they did these things, and you're and they're mailing in random postcards. Right. Um, it was so uh, it was so vivid. And I'm remembering creators like Tourette's guy, um, or Maddox, or early. Salad Fingers. Salad Fingers. Yes, I love Salad Fingers. These were weird. <laughs> weird things that would appear on the internet and you didn't know who made them, but you felt a connection to them. Yes. And also you felt some ownership. You were like, nobody knows what the fuck this is. And in the rare occasion that you got someone to actually watch Salad Fingers with you, all they did was stop spending time with you because nobody got it because it rang your Everyone bell. Everyone was like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, right. it's weird, but like. And you knew that the people who were making this were not making money from it. There were just so many things like that. There were, and th there were so many and you were constantly being introduced to new ones because you realized all your friends had their own and their own site that they went to and it was theirs. And you can be that for someone if you are like, you just go into this with no intention of making money. Down the line, it might end up helping you. Um, if, if for six or seven years, you do a very weird, obscure podcast and you've got like 150 people who listen to it in weird places around the world and listen to it regularly, Maybe in a, you'll be in a financial tight spot 10 years from now and a, a sponsor will swing in with 200 bucks and that's really going to help you out. But um, if you're looking for robust monetary reward in the respect of your peers, I, I don't know of a single thing that is respected. I, with the exception of maybe Humans of New York, I can't think of a single profile that's respected by everyone uniformly that is also interesting. Um, Humans of New York is a great example. I remember yeah. following them when I lived in New York and my mom was like, have you heard about this thing called Humans of New York? I'm like, mom, what is that? She's like, they have a blog too. It like, did not, oh, did it start on Instagram? No, it was a blog. Mm. I don't even that, think Instagram was around when, when they, when they blew up. And that guy has branched out and he has used his platform oh, to do good things. But he is so consistent. And the thing that he is so doing now is the thing he was doing a decade ago. Because um, it's- Oh, it, and I, it kills me. Like when he drops like a one out of four of the stories. Oh yeah. And then there was that one, the exotic dancer. It was like one out of 24 episodes. One out of 24 Oh my God, that, that older woman in the wheelchair. Yeah. And oh, then they her. did a fifth, a last one, like an epilogue post number 25 out of 24, where she got reunited with her son because of the posts. So many beautiful things like that have happened. And it just goes to show like the internet isn't all bad. Right. A lot of it is. It just depends on the intent and the way that you use it. 
I want to know who your dream person is to interview. David Remnick, the editor-in-chief of The New Yorker. Even after he rejected your pitch? That's another thing. You have to reframe your, if you're going to get into some sort of mode of creative <laughs> expression, you have to reframe and you have to think, I think of it in a lofty way. Like I doff my cap and I like fucking polish my fingernails on my shoulder and I say, yeah, I got rejected personally by David Remnick. That man is busy as fuck. And he took a fucking minute out of his day to write me like four sentences. Um, and uh, I had to email him twice. And I think he got a vibe of like, this kid's not gonna go away <laughs> um, unless I talk to him, which is nice. But yeah, he I find him fascinating, mainly what I find fascinating about him. And I find it almost equally fascinating about my general manager at my fucking restaurant where I work is that the, the amount of shit that that man has to keep in his head about the, the legal aspects of running that magazine, which are terrifying because constantly being threatened with lawsuits when he does exposés, particularly the Weinstein thing, that was a terrifying, I think, he downplays it, but I have to imagine they were terrified when they were about to run that story. And, um, but also he has, by his own description, a severely autistic, I think 21 year old daughter. And, um, and he's a tough life. Just, he married a woman named Esther Fine, who was a very respected reporter. And he was like, we thought they have two sons who are older. And he was like, we thought we were gonna have this feminist ideal where sort of we are both respected um, journalists, some uh, some measure of rivalry in our respective professions, working for different outlets, I for the New Yorker, she for the New York Times. And then it turns out she had to give up her job because one of us had to be the breadwinner, one of us had to become the caretaker for our daughter. And so it's like he's got that enormously demanding and emotionally taxing home life. And yet he balances one of the most, what I have to imagine is one of the most stressful and innovative jobs in journalism. Um, and he says things like, you know, he considers the history of the New Yorker and he says, the reason I send a respectable worker to a trap house fucking thing or to ultra is because I think it's a huge blemish on the New Yorker that no one was covering Duke Ellington in the thirties. We didn't send, you know, the New Yorker just didn't think it was serious. Um, and now that's a huge loss on our part. And he's like, I don't want there to be something that's just growing now. And it's a huge cultural influence in 15 years and the New Yorker never covered it when he was a baby. Do you have a mantra that you live by? My friend, my friend Steve Donahue, who's a YouTuber, just mentioned that was just asked this question, and he said it was some something like the slow trickle hollows a mountain, or something, the one drop of water at a time for a very long period of time ends up hollowing out the most sturdy rock. He had a way more poetic and succinct way of of, of saying it, but yeah, something like that. If I, I find that I go to the same consistency. Path. Yeah, I go to the same two coffee shops every day at the same time. Which ones? One, one, one on the day. One is called Purest in Brickle, and then the other one is called Passion del Cielo in Coral Gables. And um, I, I go to one Those when I'm working in the Gables. Shops. They both are. And um, But I'm there, and I do my writing, and it's second nature. And every now and then, I have some sort of creative thing to show the world. And it just accumulated so gradually, you almost don't realize it's coming up. That's another thing that's really fucking important, like is, is not having one project at a time. You need to juggle things. This I learned this from Kevin Smith of all people. Did you ever see Jersey Girl, the movie he made with uh, with Ben no. Affleck? Oh my God, it's fucking horrible. But he was talking about the the lesson of it is like he spent like six months writing that movie, two months in pre production, four months in principal photography, three months in post production, two weeks in promotion, and then the movie comes out and it flops in two days. And he's I like, what? Hearing about this. Yeah, and he was like, what do I have to show right now? Um, 
What do I have to show for myself? And and so he was saying like now in his career, he's always moving plates around. He's always working on several projects at once because if one of them fails horribly, you can you can move, you can distract yourself from it. You don't get too beat up because you can say to yourself, well, this next thing is going to or whatever. Um, or just dive into the other fun project you're working on that will console you. Can you tell people where they can find you? Yeah, on social media. Um, you can find me. On you know, I asked I asked someone that, and they were like, "You mean where I live? <laughs> where they can find you?" Oh I my was god! Like, yeah, your exact home address and social security, please. Anyways, okay. So you had said where people can find me. Well, Puros and Passion at eight in the morning on Instagram. It's Thousand Movie Project, all spelled out, and then um, the podcast is Thousand Movie Project podcast, and it's on all, all, the, all the major platforms. And then the two ebooks, the first one is, they're both available on Amazon probably at the time that you're uploading this. First one is called My Three Repugnant Children, of whom I've recently grown fond. And then the second one is called um, The Moon and Her Sister Turn 30 and Leave. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really no, appreciate my, it. My pleasure. Thank and you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Stay tuned for a brand new episode dropping next Wednesday at 5 p.m.